Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Aris Komporosas Athanasiu and I'm Associate Professor at the University College London. And I'm uh, Adam Kingsmith, a PhD candidate at York University and an instructor at OCAD U. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. My name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University. And this episode, it is my great pleasure to welcome on Kira Milburn, who is a longtime political activist from the UK. Uh, Kira spent over a decade teaching political economy at organization, but now works on municipalism, economic democracy, and political economy for the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. His most recent book is Generation Left, and it's a great book at that. Uh, he's a member of the Red Plenty Games Collective and co-host of ACFM, the podcast on Novara Media. Kira, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Max. Yes, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. So glad to be here. We're so happy to have you on the show. And so uh, I think I'll just kind of lead us off. Um, I, I recently read your piece, uh, Generation Left After Corbynism, Assets, Age, and the Battle for the Future. And I thought it was a really, really great framing of a lot of the debates that we've been talking about on the show. And so I just kind of wanted to start with this, this quote you, uh, you have in the piece, um, just your basic thesis, right? The article argues that the political generation gap is a much better starting place from which to unearth changing class composition and the nature of the current conjuncture. And you sort of explore this through the tensions around the different uh, age demographics and voting for labor versus conservative, something that we see playing out in Canada a ton in, in the context of you know, the social democratic party versus the liberal versus the conservative party. And there's this kind of great paraphrasing of Stuart Hall that you do, uh, that age is a key modality through which class is lived. And I was just hoping you could maybe elaborate a bit on that for our, for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, so that that article's not quite out yet. It's going to come out with South Atlantic Quarterly, um, uh, probably soon, actually. Uh, but it's sort of like an extension of the sort of generational work I did in this book, Generation Left, which came out in 2019 now. So um, it came out at the height of the Corbyn movement in the UK and actually like the parallel Bernie Sanders movement in the in the US. Uh, obviously, we're in slightly different times now. <laughs> both those movements, both those projects came to a crunching halt, really, you know, within a couple of months of each other, which tells us something, basically, that, that, that tells us something about the possibilities of those projects. Uh, that this was a, this is, in part, that article starts off as trying to account for you know, what was going on at that moment, how we understand, in particularly the UK, the, the general election in which um, uh, Labour got badly defeated in 2019 uh, to try to dispute the dominant framing of that, which is a very sort of, it's a, it's a very strange framing actually when you pick it out, but the framing of, the, of this is in a very, there's some sort of like classed maps onto geography sort of thing, uh, a little bit sort of, you know, the, 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 the elite well, it's the right-wing discourse, isn't it, right? This, this, this metropolitan, cosmopolitan elite in the cities out of touch with the real working class uh, in the small towns. Just map that onto the US, you can map it onto the UK, etc. And in political science in the UK, it's, sort of, it's done through this very strange sort of values mapping, mapping of values. And in some sort of way, they're just talking about like some sort of like personality types, right? If you try to just say the, we, we think they're personality types, <laughs> which you can map onto like, uh, you can map via five, 10 questions, 
you'd be laughed out of town. But that's basically what it what it is, basically, as though that people have certain char- characters, personalities who are perhaps socially authoritarian, but but um, uh, economically left. That's the great cohort that people are chasing around, uh, you know. <laughs> and in fact, I say, look, look, you know, if we do this in a sort of generational way and map that onto basically asset ownership or something like that, you say, look, the the core of the the new conservative coalitions, certainly in the UK, I think in the US as well, are property pensioners. So the Labour Party actually won the most votes amongst working age populations in the, in the 2019 uh, election. It's quite astonishing. So it was like retired people, people, you know, that, that the classic working class, those people in society who don't work <laughs> and rely on income from their asset ownership um, or perhaps you know, pensions, you know, invested in shares, et cetera, uh, for, for their incomes. Like, so that changes things a bit. And so in a way, it's tried to assert the idea of material interests as a way to think about things rather than disembodied personality type values. But then it's like I, I try to start doing, well, look, this is quite interesting because assets, what's assets as opposed to like commodities? It's like, you know, it's got a temporal dimension. And so I'm trying to get to a place where, where I say, let's map a couple of different ways in which that asset logic um, uh, works into sort of subjectivation, which is the way people sort of, these sorts of things influence the way people think about themselves in the world. Uh, and I sort of say, oh, there are probably two broad ways in which this happens, in particular in, in relation to pop political subjectivities. One of them is, um, you know, the reason that older people own assets and are voting conservative, that's a long-term 30-year, 40-year project in the UK, which started by selling off council housing or social housing, the right to buy your council house for 30% below market value, a massive giveaway. There's no doubt about it. Everyone who designed those policies were, we want to make people think of themselves as asset owners, not workers, so that they will vote conservative. Right, that's political subjectivation. And on the other side of that, it's sort of the more the new Labour years in this country, the sort of third way era in which um, yet there's reform of institutions, oh, most, most classically around university and higher education, we all know that, um, reform around institutions around the logic of human capital. Right, a metaphor of human capital that we must treat ourselves as an asset, as a, a beast of human of human capital that we have to invest in, and then we try to predict the returns on that investment. That is what the you know the the, the introduction of fees into university in the UK is, is based upon. It, it's more or less explicitly, not as explicit as the asset owning bit, but you know. In the UK, the introduction of fees cost the government more, cost students more, didn't do great amounts for universities. One of those classic Pareto reforms where nobody benefits. <laughs> Why is that introduced then? Subjective trait, subjectivation, trying to alter the way students and academics think about. And you can do that for all sorts of institutions. You know, I sort of argue that after 2008, the subjectivation around human capital sort of collapses. And that Human capital subjectivation is oriented towards younger people. Asset owning subjectivation towards older people. Asset owning subjectivation, that's been fucking rewarded. Quantitative easing, all of these responses to, um, to, the, to the crisis of 2008, you know, all of that money just flows into asset ownership. So that part of the asset logic subjectivation still, is still viable. The human capital aspect of, of that asset logic um, much less viable, basically. That story's much less believable to young people, so that opens them up to a story, to other stories about what the future can look like. Uh, I wanted to ask you to maybe unpack a little bit more 
precisely this point about what kind of political subject uh, emerges out of this tension. And uh, because it, you know, it really is a very interesting situation that we're interested in exploring now project as well, whereby although the, the insistence on constructing that entrepreneurial neoliberal subject, you know, it, it's still very much with us. There is, it becomes increasingly obvious to, well, to the subjects themselves, the, the, the generation, uh, the younger generation, that those promises are not going to be delivered. And, you know, there is this kind of domino of collapsing uh, promises. So, so then what is, uh, this is an interesting atmosphere, uh, a political atmosphere. And, and I'm just wondering, where do you think, what are the outlines of what kind of political subject really emerges out of this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, so it's not necessarily that 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 that, that sort of collapse would lead to a, some some sort of left political subject. So generation left is like you know these are tendencies, and we can work out ways in which we can re reinforce that and, and push those tendencies, rather than the idea that this is an accomplished fact that we can sit back and wait for demographics to do the job. Yeah, and so so it is. One of the ways in which I, I want to think about one of the ways I wrote about it in it, exactly this point in the in my generation left book was to talk about it uh, uh, that we'd entered after 2008 we'd entered this stage of zombie capitalism no sorry zombie neoliberalism where the the subjective training all of the institutions that young people are, are still forced to engage with they're forced to engage with these regimes of debt around around student fees and all these sorts of things, you know, just because you don't think it's going to pay off or it's gonna, the payoff is going to be less, this, that doesn't mean it's easy to get step outside of that logic. So you you basically, it's this like zombie logic where the institutions are still working to try to force you to, to think about the world in that way, but it doesn't make sense, right? And so that sort of leads to a sort of, it leads you to be much more open to make the sort of, uh, the the metricization and the sort of more disciplinary aspects of that more visible basically you know in some ways we can lead on to this idea of, of of anxiety you know all of those that sort of like human capital thing that's where you get huge anxiety you're constantly being being forced to sort of uh, uh, to measure yourself and, and to think of yourself as well I've just invested this now I need that return oh I'm not getting that return that must be my fault that must be a failing of my fault that's what that's the sort of neoliberal responsibilization anxiety machine basically anxiety producing machine unfortunately that doesn't get rid of the anxiety but it opens you up I think to stories around structural causes for that and so, and, and so one way to think about that might be with debt like you know taking on debt that can be a speculative activity in which you know, you're expecting some sort of return in the future. So that can be a positive thing. When the return seems much less viable, that's, those debts don't suddenly seem onerous and an imposition rather than something that you are embracing yourself and is emerging from yourself. So it, it, in some ways, it's, it's a subject which is necessarily to the left, but it opens the, that those, those people up much more to left and, their, and sort of structural analyses of what's constraining their lives, basically. And therefore, for left stories about what the future could be like if we overcome those constraints. You, you do, towards the end of your article, talk about this idea of public commons partnerships uh, as an alternative to, um, to the sort of return to the welfare state, but also the, this wave of partnerships uh, within the neoliberal frame. I was wondering if you can give us an example of what, what is the political potential of these uh, partnerships that you're describing um, for, for, for the kind of subject that we, we're just discussing. 
it's quite a lot of my day job at the minute is is uh, is working on these public common partnerships um and we just released a new report just a couple of weeks ago which we've been working with two projects around common uh, commonly owned assets you know the, the thing with public common partnerships is it is a it's a reverse engineer public private partnerships the pu public finance initiative pfis is the most classic form of public private partnership that in the uk uh, and we sort of really reverse engineer it and try to think of it in terms of like um, left governmentality, if you want, as a reversal of like the neoliberal governmentality. So that the point that we're trying to think is you're trying to train democratic subjects, basically, but <laughs> induce people into into moments of, of collective deliberation with others, basically. And so when we design these public common partnerships, one of the things we're trying to do is is to insulate the democratic moment from discipline by finance. And so that might be that you're trying to separate the servicing of any debts you, you, you do from the sort of the planning sort of thing. So in, in both of these things, one is in Tottenham and one of them is in Plymouth. These are actually existing projects who are who we've been working with to develop this idea. And, and the idea is that they would not just take over one asset, but basically the, the sort of any profit produced by, by, by an asset will go into bringing another project or asset into community ownership or common ownership. And then on again, into a sort of self-expansive dynamic, basically, to, to reverse, once again, the self-expansive dynamic of, of capital. And so one of the things we, we, we get in that is that, that you have to insulate any democratic processes from being overdetermined by, by the pressures of finance. And that's a reverse engineering of, of the neoliberal thing where you insulate economic decision-making from democratic pressure. Like the most classic example of that is central bank independence, of course, right? But like, you know, that's built into all sorts of neoliberal things. And so, yeah, so that what you're trying to produce, you're trying to produce those moments of collectivity. One of the really interesting things is one of the places we've been working with is, is, a, is a market in Tottenham called Ward's Corner. But it's had a big, big campaign against a gentrification campaign. It's called the Latin Village. It's quite well known in the, in the UK. But of course, the people you're working with there, they're like sole traders or small business people. The classic petty bourgeoisie <laughs> of quite a proletarianised petty bourgeois, uh, to be honest, right? And that, that tends to be the, the subject, you know, we... That, that class, if you want to expand it a bit to the self-employed and so that's a big, big class. And I think probably for political contestation about which way they would go, the classic class would go to the far right or the right because of the anxious sort of situation that they're in. And we think that that, you know, what you can do to that is add a moment of collectivity to that sort of class composition, make people think of themselves as a collective actor as a, and, and act in deliberation. Let's see how that works out over the next <laughs> five to 10 years. What's so interesting is that, yeah, in these initiatives, uh, as you say, you end up working with people who typically would be associated with the, the petty bourgeoisie, the sort of small shopkeepers, small capitalists who are being proletarianized. And I just want to ask you to kind of link that to then the mentality of young, young people today, because it seems like to a certain extent, the dreams of freedom that many young people have, even though they are being proletarianized and their human capital investments are proving to have not survived the inflation of human capital, uh, still do remain sort of uh, petty bourgeois in many cases. I mean, most people don't dream of necessarily working at you know, a job and going home and having a lot of free time. A lot of young people, especially who've been sort of habituated to the human capital treadmill, have been habituated to imagine that they want to own a small business or be a business person or be an influencer, which is basically just an Instagram business person, et cetera, et cetera. Before we move on to the games thing, I just want to invite 
you to reflect a bit and if you have any thoughts about what does this mean then for for left organizing if we're in a world of small shopkeepers i mean are is there a grounds for solidarity there or is it just the sort of lonely solidarity of the market uh, and how does that expression of solidarity as a kind of like let's band together against big business as small business transcend to become something that's maybe that would actually have the potential to create a different kind of world i know it's a big question that's a, that's a really big question. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's a really great question because, you know, the other way to think about this, like the whole Foucauldian thing about governmentality is, yeah, you're training people to be entrepreneurs, the human capital metaphor, to be an entrepreneur of yourself, et cetera. But also, yeah, to be entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and like to unpick it, we'd have to go into like, what is the relationship between the movements for autonomy in the 1970s and mm. neoliberalism? Right? Was one automatically leading to the, to the, to the other? Was one, um, you know, uh, uh, was neoliberalism some sort of capture of the desires to to not work, basically, mm -hmm. right? And they get captured, and you basically you're working uh, more more than ever. Uh, you know, I'm much more on that latter actually. And so, so this ACFM podcast we do, which is sort of an acid communist slash, it was an acid Corbynist uh, podcast. We called ourselves. It started from because we were all friends of Mark Fisher, who who um, was a social theorist who unfortunately killed himself a few years ago, um, and what, but he was in the process of writing a book called Acid Communism, which 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 was really was taking these sort of what was going on in the nineteen seventies. Uh, he was overcoming his own hippie phobia, as he said. What 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 can still be taken from them now? How can we reject this idea that like the movements of the nineteen seventies and sixties and all their complexity were always just leading to neoliberalism, and now we need to get rid of that and go back to some other form of leftism? I'm really really interested in that, and I, the way I'd probably work through like what you do about that, um, you know, what you do about this sort of entrepreneurial aspect is is to is to go. We could go back to like Mark Fisher's writings about acid communism in which he's really really concerned about consciousness raising it's a sort of interesting story there mark was involved in a in a group called plan c which i was involved in at that time who had experimented with with consciousness raising groups and that the whole idea of consciousness raising is that you're, you're trying to get get some sort of grip on the sort of structural and more abstract dynamics the structural constraints on your life that are not necessarily uh, immediately obvious i think like that is the that is the way in which you'd have to go around entrepreneurialism and say, yeah, you think you want to set up a, a business, perhaps you do, but like you've got those desires have got other roots to them, basically. And you're being funneled into one expression of those desires because of these huge structural forces. And in fact, those don't lead to freedom. So one of the reasons you want to go back to the 1970s and, and one of the things that Mark Fisher was really, really, really interested in was this idea of like, you know, was there a social democratic basis for this huge upsurge of, of cultural experimentation and political experimentation, experimentation in new ways of living, you know, that a certain level of suspension of the link between work and destitution allows you to have these huge experiments, which leads to the sort of that a real concern amongst like, like what you would say are the politics of generation left with things such as universal basic income, universal basic services, some sort of way to get back to that sort of social democratic sort of com compact or compromise, I suppose, it makes an interesting segue because I think like that project of going back to the acid communism is uh, a radical ontology to kind of invite the ghosts of a of a vanquished past to come back to haunt us. And that's also kind of implicit in the name of your games collective, Red Plenty, which is a term that often refers to the kind of utopian dreams that we're allowed to 
sort of in some ways briefly emerged in the 1950s in the Soviet Union, uh, which these kind of ideas that eventually the Soviet system would liberate humanity from work and we would have a kind of amazing sort of science fiction world, which is a wonderful thing, a wonderful sort of name for a collective. But I wanted to turn to the work of that collective and and you sent us this quite amazing game that you folks have designed called a Transnational Social Strike, which is a game, it's a participatory game to be played with basically activists for the most part. Can you tell us a little bit about that collective and why why you formed and also what a transnational social strike is and why you would play a game to train for it? Red Plenty Games is named after this book by Francis Bufford called Red Plenty, which is, it's really about that, this moment in the Soviet Union where they were embracing cybernetics and there was some sort of confidence that they would overtake the US in terms of product, production, etc. Um, and we'd move from socialism to full communism by 1980 was the, was the plan. I think they missed it. But yeah, so it's that sort of like that sort of optimism. In a way, that was just a game we had to pluck out of thin air when we <laughs> came to put a name for the collective on the first sort of pamphlet we did. But interestingly, that emerged, that Red Plenty game emerged in, in similarly in, in the context of uh, Mark Fisher's death, the, the, the group I was involved in in Leeds, which is where I live, were upset. We were upset. Our friend had died. And we, so we, we it was a conversation that we had straight after that about how do we look after each other? Basically, how do you look after each other? Let's look after each other. Let's think about how we could do politics, which isn't necessarily self-sacrificial and driving ourselves on a bit. How can we make politics a bit more fun and several of us wanted to do <laughs> to, to gamify politics also just to play games basically but also to try and start, think about gamification for politics in 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 that and you know it, eventually it's, it's whittled down to three of us who invent to run these games the game i sent you was actually called the social strike game it might have had transnational on it i'm not quite sure and, and the idea of a social strike is this debate that was that was current at the time and i still quite like so this is going back a, a few years and the idea of a social strike is um is perhaps you'd have to have a strike through the whole of society not just within the factory you know, perhaps the factory has been broken up the mass factory the classic mass factory where you have the classic mass strike outsourced being spread around networks all around the world so perhaps you know how do different groups work together to add leverage to what other groups are doing and so the social strike might be you know there's a strike in a in a logistics factory and then so this is one of the things that happened in northern Italy you know several years ago and then the use from the social centers would come and add to the picket lines by doing perhaps a party there or a reclaim the streets type of action there um, and so, yeah, that was a sort of idea, the provocation. And we've used it in various different forms. We've used different forms, the, 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 the root mechanic of it. And the root mechanic is, you know, you have to come up with, you have to deploy these sort of different groups to do, come up with different things to do. And then you might get plus or minus rolls on your dice, the whole classic. <laughs> but as long as there's dice rolling, people love it, basically. And we've done, we've done different versions of this. We've used that. We use that to do a, a game called... The first hundred days we did this in 2019 when Corbyn was still there and like you know what would somebody came in and sort of did a, a, a sort of explanation of the sorts of attacks the left government might come under and then people had to come up with ways in which you might respond to that 
we played it the year after in 2020 and we did a different version that was called the next five years because <laughs> there was not much prospect of a left government's first hundred days anymore so now let's broaden the horizon and it was a similar sort of thing people would come in and, and give talks about what are the challenges of the next five years and then you had to develop the scenarios that another group would then play through using the social strike mechanism etc yeah and then we we've tried different versions of this at the minute we're inventing a we're, 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 we're producing a game called Parts Per Million, which is a climate change game. It's going to be more of a board game. We tried that as a game, a game where we were the, we were the sort of uh, the games masters and it came proved really demanding. But, and if, if you have to be there, it's not very, it, it can't really spread very well. So we're trying to make it into a board, much more of a board game. And the lesson for that one is much more that you have different interests, you have different sectors of society and they've got different interests in relation to climate change and whatever metrics we're using so they've got different wind conditions and so the lesson you play through is interests exist in society those interests express themselves in different political affordances or something and that in, in fact you, you, might, you might have similar shared interests and form alliances with those and then that's the way you'll get things done are these these are games mostly for organizers to help organizers envision how to strategize and how to work together or are these games also for newcomers to the topic for them to learn about the issue and and how to fight back would you say well the various versions of the social strike game that's been literally played by like hundreds and hundreds of people like people have played it in australia in bit, different bits of europe etc and we've played it with you know organizers activists but like ordinary people as well so, so people who were interested, but basically would just turn up to a sort of political event. There's been a whole series of like political education events in the UK around Corbynism. The World Transformed is this big um, event, uh, and they also have local groups which do their own sorts of events. And, and we've played at all sorts of different places, you know, in, and, and different sort of constituencies. And basically most people can just get it, right? They can get it and play it. And it seems to not have to rely on people who... Yeah, who have some sort of activist background, I think. So in that way, it's sort of pedagogical in that people can put themselves in a, in a sort of scenario. And I mean, games are precisely that. They're like the whole, the classic thing of the game is that like, you know, it's something in which change happens, but then everything returns to where, the way it was at the beginning. That's like Freud's thing of Fort Da, et cetera, where like everything returns back to where it was. So it's in a way, it's a way you can, you can sort of set some artificial parameters and then explore the possibility space of that, of those parameters. And if you, you know, you change those parameters and do, and, and explore something slightly, slightly different. Yeah. And so that's, that's perhaps how you, how we, how we think of those sorts of games. And we sort of think of them as like, we're trying to get people to think in terms of, to think strategically, particularly in this social strike game, what you do in the first round will really determine what you do in the second and the third and the fourth round. And we normally have perhaps three groups of people playing their own distinct games within one room and everyone starts off in a city if we played at a city level which in which everything is the same and then each city develops in their own way and so the possibilities of your moves change as it goes on so it sort of induces you to think if we're going to do this big thing we need to do this small thing before we get to the big thing sort of idea whether it has that effect i don't know they're also fun to play and to, and to host so you know it's win-win for us and i think uh in terms of your point about how do we you know think strategically about, you know, not only sort of how to respond, how to organize, how to form solidarity, but how to map the kinds of things that we're up against, the way the, the right is kind of configuring and forming. Um, I'm thinking so much about your concept of, of the cosmic right, 
which I think is a really, really interesting and productive concept. And, you know, obviously just briefly looking at some of your pieces, some of your writing in Novera and elsewhere, you talk about it as this recent phenomena in which kind of new age, spirituality, wellness communities are all kind of conflating and, and kind of overlapping. And I, I'd love if you could just elaborate a bit more on, on how, you, how you conceive of this cosmic right and how you're mapping it out and, and sort of what it does. First off, I'll say it wasn't my coinage. It was an internet friend from Australia, Dave Eden, who's also produced his own game uh, about uh, generations, actually, um, who, who came up with this and we were chatting and I was throwing around this idea of acid fascism to go along with uh, acid communism or acid socialism or communism or something. But the cosmic right seemed to just get it a bit better uh, than acid fascism, I think. And so, yeah, so the, 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 in, in a way we were trying to grasp this shift amongst um, communities who would, would traditionally be thought of at least culturally on the left, right? Coming out of sort of countercultural movements, perhaps new age movements, which move it a little bit away from what you think of as like 60s or 70s countercultural movements. But you can see what with our ACFM focus, why we'd, we'd sort of be interested in that. And then of course, it's just, you know, this wraps up with QAnon, these communities really susceptible to QAnon. And then of course, during the pandemic, you know, it just goes off the scale. Um, you know, there's the sort of anti-mask, anti-lockdown protests in the UK. I find them a really disturbing phenomenon, partly because of the composition of the people on them. Tend to be quite young, lots of women, lots of lot, lots of uh, people from ethnic minorities in the UK in particular. Uh, lots of people who who perhaps they they're white and they've got dreadlocks, and you know they look like people that uh, might have come to. Yeah, you might have played one of my games in the past, or, come, or gone or gone on sort of like you know uh, reclaim the streets protests in the nineteen nineties and these sorts of things. So I find it you know it's something to to work out basically what's going on and uh, and what the problem is. And of course, as soon as you get into things such as QAnon, you're bang into this idea this this problem of game gamification and QAnon is is you know an alternative reality game an extension of a LARP, as you well know. And, you know, I found Wu Ming Wen's, the interview did with Wu Ming Wen, you know, and, and his concept of like, how, how can you um, separate these sort of left media pranks that the tradition that they come from and, you know, really the milieu in which I grew up uh, from these sort of these new right-wing conspiratorial games, you know, and the whole, the big reveal and the double wow is actually really, really important. And I think also actually really important for thinking through the role that like that left games can play not just alternative reality games but even the sorts of little board games and sort of role-playing games that um that we do at red plenty you know that in a way they have to fulfill that role left games have to fulfill that consciousness raising role that i talked about earlier and so the, the consciousness raising group in, in classical form that comes from second wave feminism out of sort of like readings of maoist practices <laughs> in the 1960s but the basic practice is, you know, a group of people get together, they discuss their own lives because you recognize the commonality and problems that you're suffering. Therefore, because they're common problems, they can't be your own personal failing, as you might have thought before. They must have some sort of structural causes. So that's the basic basis for that. And then you may not be able to get at those structural causes just from recounting your own personal experiences. Something else probably needs to come in there. But like that is the the, the revelation of, of structural causes and abstract dynamics such as capital uh, and, you know, the, the sort of constraints and imperatives of capital. That's what you're trying to reveal. You're trying to reveal. And of course, that's probably what the cosmic right and the, the, like the whole denialist aspect of that deny climate change is that is the earth denial but deny um deny covid 
yeah, <laughs> that COVID exists or, you know, or perhaps it's man-made or you know, all of those denials that, that, and this whole like, you know, anti-woke stuff that, that accompanies denialism, like anti-woke ideology in a way is like, a, it's a sort of like preemptive neoliberal responsabilization. It is to say, if anyone tells you there's a structural cause to the conditions of your life, don't believe them. You know, they're just trying to get you to blame somebody else for your own problems. It's like, you know, preemptively stopping consciousness raising in, in a way. And I, I sort of see denialism, anti-woke theory, QAnon, LARPs as well, all rolled into that. And of course, so the, so the left game must be the, the opposite. It must be, perhaps there is a moment where you play this thing and then there's a great reveal or a, the double wow. You reveal the structural causes of, of these things i'm not sure my games aren't as sophisticated as that one day i hope they are but that, i think that's the way i sort of see the cosmic right and how that falls into gaming and like what we might do about it and Wu Ming one in the interview as you mentioned talks about like the reveal as kind of maybe the difference right revealing that it is like this this ruse like there's this intention behind it and that kind of maps onto some of your point about you know the need for the left to reclaim this concept of kind of reason a collective reason and i think you do a really great job contrasting this with kind of right-wing cosmic right and liberal notions of reason you know things like steven pinker taking it back to the kind of white supremacist origins of the enlightenment and so i guess i'm curious you know what do you see as the genealogy of this kind of collective leftist reason and how do we kind of practice this especially in the context of kind of games right which are sort of like playful maybe sometimes unreasonable or intentionally kind of not so logical uh, yeah i'd love to hear some thoughts yeah i mean it's a great one and, and in fact we can sort of go back to uh wu ming's argument again about you know what's the what's the attraction of QAnon? well you get an enchanted life basically <laughs> it's enchanted you're powerful etc uh and and you know he says we should use that enchantment we shouldn't deny that enchantment we should use that enchantment but then do the reveal so it would be something like, you know, I want to have enchantment in the world. And like the ACFM podcast, we title ourselves the home of the weird left, basically. But, you know, I, yeah, but there is this project of, of, of collective reason, which goes back to the consciousness raising thing. You know, ultimately, you know, perhaps that reason is, you know, we have to take into account the embodied nature of that of that reason. The sort of like, you know, the 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 constraints that come with that, the sort of group dynamic constraints that come with that, the structural constraints of, of these huge fetishes that we that we um, we operate with, such as race and money and these sorts of things, you know, you know, all of those things mean that that is a reason that has to be collectively chipped out of, of all of these things, all of these constraints and, and limits on that need to be recognised and and chipped out so we don't have this free-floating disembodied version of of reason that that like pinker and like liberal tradition tries to tries to uh, enact and of course what what goes along with that is you know only some people are allowed reason the other people have to do all of that work all of that social reproductive and structural and infrastructural work in order to give this this white man the ability to to feel autonomous from the world basically they're not autonomous yeah, that would be the game, wouldn't it, right? You start with this feeling of, of autonomy and then you strip away all and reveal all the infrastructural things uh, and say, um, don't give up on reason. But like your conception of reason is, you know, you, you can't ignore all of these other, other factors that, that, that come into it. Just looking towards, if we were to, to think of a, a, the kind of playful culture, the playful kind of political uh, atmosphere for the 2020s, what, what do you think the kind of hacking culture uh political culture is likely to 
look like? What would it, you know, where would we see it? What, you know, what kind of forms might it take? I mean, it's quite hard to see, isn't it? We live in pretty doomy times, basically. We've got climate change, a huge rollback of democracy, which goes along with, you know, acceleration of inequalities and so forth. And we perhaps we can't just, we can't magic these playful uh, affects out, out of nowhere, right? But of course, you have to then create Perhaps that's what games are. The games are where you can create, you know, the magic circle within which you can be playful and try these things out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even if when we return back to real life, it's quite a grim and hard, hard, hard aspect. In terms of like how, how we think about what, the, what sort of hacking might, might go on. Like, like I've been really, really fascinated by, by your project in this and the whole counter games and, and conspiracies thing, you know, it really is my jam and I've been really, it's really been really stimulating to me for thinking about, about these sorts of things. And so, and one of those is, I think the way that you've done it, it is that you like, think about the, think about the conspiracy theories that are going on. Um, think about how you counter those basically in order to make space for more autonomous production. And, and so I think it does, it sort of works a little bit like that, where you have to think through what's going on with these conspiracies. What are they, what needs are they addressing? And can you provide a left answer to those needs and desires? You know, and I think you you sort of go back to this, like what is going on with this denialism and denialist games that is queuing on? I was watch, I rewatched the, the film Memento uh, two weeks ago, if you remember the film, which is where, which is when it, it plays backwards, a guy has no memory, et cetera. There's a nice metaphor there, isn't there? Like, you know, the lack of historical memory in the capitalism, but. Actually, this is a spoiler, just thinking about it. But like, basically, there's this, in Memento, this guy is, he's, he's pursuing this mystery about who killed his wife. And he's not got, he's got no short-term memories. So he has to write everything down, etc. Then as you get to the end, it gets revealed that, in fact, he's invented this mystery because the truth is unbearable. The truth is he killed his wife by fucking up an insulin injection. And so he's invented this mystery to distract him from this unbearable truth. Now, that is, seems like a metaphor for right-wing denialist games, basically. You invent a conspiracy which distracts you from the unbearable truth of climate change. Dealing with climate change is going to be really hard. It's going to be collective, and it's going to involve really, really big, serious politics on a global level. It's much better to invent a little mystery conspiracy in which, you know, um, a small group of people have acted to conspire to not cause climate change. You're denying that. But, like, oh, the great replacement, like, replace white people or whatever, um, as as the sort of like you know the, the 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 distraction from that much better to face a small group of people conspiring because you can solve that with a small group of people acting against it it's sort of like that memento thing that's the way i see those games is that like if people are trying to they don't want to face this unbearable truth they want to get you know distract themselves with pretend mysteries basically and so perhaps you start with the pretend mystery and you slowly unveil unveil the unbearable truth, but in doing that, you're trying to con construct the capacities in which that truth becomes slightly less unbearable and slightly more, it constructs you into, into an active subject. I mean, that's the great problem with, with, which sets up by conspiracy theories is that like, you can do this sort of Steven Pinker type reason um, reveal in which you reveal them all to be thick, stupid people um, who are, <laughs> so you construct them into this passive situation and like people are also not gonna accept that you say, you point this thing out and say, look, you've been fooled. That's not the, that's not great. That's, that's not the, that's not the double wow, basically is you need the wow of the first bit, but the wow of the reveal as well. But wow, you are potentially 
powerful active subjects because this thing was put this system of you was put into place by people it can actually be taken out by people unfortunately it was a big open conspiracy complex dynamics which are very very hard to to counter we're all caught up in it none of us are pure etc etc I was so happy to, to chat with Kira. It was really, it was really a real treat for me. Um, you know, when we were talking about the stuff around plan C and consciousness raising, I just, I always think about this piece. We are all very anxious that I read maybe seven or eight years ago, which for me as like a young grad student was really like the key vector into understanding, you know, my own anxieties in relation to capitalism and capitalist markets and the stuff around kind of being again, rational and irrational ways and playing with these dichotomies was just was just like something that was really central for me. Yeah, how do we get a grip on structural constraints and abstract dynamics, you know, and like really, I think what we're trying to do in this podcast in a lot of ways is, is theorize this question around like, you know, how do we do gamification as a way to care for each other and build solidarity. And I think that just the, the work and the trajectories that the people like here are coming out of are just really, really central to that. And, you know, so for, from, for me, it was, I felt like a fanboy uh, getting to, getting to listen to, uh, you know, people who've done that work. Um, because again, I've probably read some of those essays like a hundred times and they inform the way I think about a lot of this stuff. I thought that framing was really good too, about like, you know, how do we kind of bring in this like acid communist understanding again, how do we be playful, surrealistic, but at the same time, getting over that like frustration that we all kind of have with like sort of like hippie discourses and the kind of neoliberal capture of spirituality, wellness, alternative practices and, and medicines. And for me, really, you know, the, the kind of avenue for left politics that I feel the most strongly about, the most comfortable about really comes from that genealogy. Yeah, absolutely. I also have I go back a long way with uh, Kira's work. I mean, many years ago, when I was starting the Radical Imagination Project with Alex Kasnavish, we were really influenced by the work of a previous collective that, that Kira was part of, Turbulence, uh, which had a wonderful magazine uh, that on the cover was the amazing question, like, what would it mean to win? And in fact, that became the central question we asked to all of the participants in the Radical Imagination Project that we researched, sort of activists in, in Canadian city, and uh, and really became something that we dwelled with quite a bit. Uh, it's still a great question to ask. Um, the one thing I wanted to pick up from this interview, I think, is really interesting to think about. Um, you know, the cosmic right and the things that Pierre is talking about in terms of how a left can reclaim a language of reason that moves us beyond the kind of um, yeah, uh, legacies of the white supremacist hypermasculine enlightenment where reason becomes the kind of jealous ring to bind them all. And what I think is really interesting about that is like in a certain way, the critique of reason, like there's a wonderful text that we've worked with, The Dialectic of Enlightenment by Horkheimer and Adorno, which talks about the fact that like, you know, ultimately reason and rationality can give birth to monsters, you know, against the kind of Kantian idea that if everyone just abides by reason and rationality, it will lead to a kind of pacific and uh, enlightened world. Their argument is, you know, and this they were writing during the Holocaust uh, from exile in, in the United States, that in fact, the tools of rationality and reason can be turned against themselves. And I think, as, as we argue in a piece that'll come out hopefully this year or next year, you know, it's it's really, we can see this in the kind of conspiracist reason that's uh, being 
advanced right now in the sense that, you know, if you talk to people who really strongly believe in COVID-19 conspiracies, or you talk to even some of the intelligent people who are sort of deep believers in QAnon, they're not as, you know, the, the white knights of reason these days, like Steven Pinker, like to imagine kind of just idiots, right? There's a lot of really smart, uh, intellectually ca capable people who are involved in this. And I say that while also putting an asterisk by it to note that, you know, our conceptions of smart and mentally capable are ableist concepts in, 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 inherently. But, you know, th these are people who have a high capacity for this thing we call reason and rationality. And that means that they are able to put at the disposal of these theories incredible mental resources. And I think there's a there's a tempting myth on the left that, you know, if only you could like get into an argument with one of these people, you'd demolish them in a second. I have I have to confess that that's just simply not true. There's lots of people who are extremely uh, capable of arguing their point. And it's led me to think, and I think it ties into some of the work we're doing, that what is lacking often is a fundamental theory of power. So Kira was talking in some ways about like how a lot of these conspiracist movements and this kind of cosmic right, they extrapolate from a fundamentally flawed understanding of how the world works, but they marshal to their cause incredible uh, mental resources so that ultimately they can build almost impregnable fortresses of reason around a completely flawed premise. And I think what this speaks to ultimately in a long-winded way is that the work of the left can't just be to debunk, as we've argued before, it has to also be in some way to offer another theory of power that actually doesn't just feel like, like a, a dour and um, sad understanding of how we're all trapped by hegemony all the time, but in fact makes people feel good. Because one of the things that I really will stop here, I think Kira's totally right about is that you know belief in the cosmic the cosmic right makes its adherents feel good. It makes them feel good about themselves. It makes them feel like they understand the world. It makes them feel like they're on the right side. It makes them feel like they're together with other people. There is a pleasure principle here. Um, and I think in confronting that, it's we need to really think through um, this question of how offering and like the tools of analysis that not only explain the world, but also give people narratives in which they feel good. The only thing I would doubt to what you both said is that very interestingly, the interview today also trails the key, some of the key ideas that we have covered so far in the podcast. And I, I really enjoyed the way it links with uh, our first episode with Wu Ming and the, the, where we were kind of kicked off with this challenge to the mainstream view of what these conspiracy gamified worlds actually look like uh, and the kind of reason, the, this concept of the enchanted reason, you know, this meeting point between rationality and playfulness and enchantment that can be so vital uh, in rethinking, as Max was saying, uh, uh, ways of resistance to, to, to this kind of very regressive uh, kind of political developments we're all faced with. And just to say that it also links very nicely with the first season of our podcast, which where we explored these uh, rise of the anxious neoliberal subject. Of course, these two issues are intimately linked, the, the emergent and, and also in Kira's work. So the how do we uh, arrive 
uh, at the current ju juncture uh, of, of these uh, weird worlds and weird alliances and meeting points of reason, emotion, and enchantment and disenchantment, being very anxious as anxious subjects, as, as, as neoliberal subjects that have been let down uh, by, by, the, by, the, by the kind of uh, system. You've been listening to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. For more information about this podcast, to listen to other episodes, or to learn about the broader project of which it's a part, please visit www.conspiracy.games. <laughs>